It's just money. It's made up. Pieces of paper with pictures on it so we don't have to kill each other just to get something to eat. We got so much trouble on our minds. Market's been so unkind. Every time the bulls start to shine, bears gather to dine and feast on the swine. Wash it down with some wine. Are we resigned to the fact there won't be a comeback anytime soon? The 60-40s in ruins. This confluence of events makes it hard to prevent. Regrets and laments, self-doubt, discontent. We're down to 25%. But don't forget, my friends, all trends do end. Not with a bang or a splash or a fiery crash, but with a simmer, then a boil. Like a spring, tightly coiled. We don't know why, we don't know when. Can I get an amen? Can we all confess? We're going to get out of this mess. We'll do it together on the Investopedia Express. One step forward, one and a half steps back. U.S. markets are having a hard time getting traction these days, and the volatility has been kind of extreme lately. Big rallies have been followed by even bigger sell-offs, which is exactly what we see when we look at historical bear markets searching for the bottom. The downward churn is particularly evident in the S&P 500 and the NASDAQ. Both market-weighted indexes ended last week lower by 1.5% and 3.1%, respectively. But last Thursday gave us one of the sharpest price reversals in history as both of these indexes bounced off of steep losses following the release of the producer price index rising more than forecast. That was hardly a reason to celebrate, but maybe they found some support after four straight days of selling. It was the fifth largest intraday reversal from a low in the history of the S&P 500 and the fourth largest in history for the NASDAQ composite. The S&P 500 closed 5% off the lows and was coming off of a 52-week low. As for historical similarities, our pal Ryan Dietrich at the Carson Group notes that also happened in March of 2009, December 2018, and March of 2020. History does not repeat, but it does rhyme. Will it again this time? The Dow Jones Industrial Average, on the other hand, is making some progress. While it fell 1.3% on Friday, it still ended the week higher by more than 1%. And that's noteworthy. While the Dow is only 30 stocks and they are not all industrials anymore, it is a price-weighted index as opposed to a market-weighted index like the S&P and the NASDAQ. It's less tech-heavy than the other major averages, which may explain its recent momentum. The Dow climbed out of its bear market a couple of weeks ago. And as our pal J.C. Peretz points out, it actually has a pretty tight correlation coefficient with the S&P 500, which has 500 stocks. In other words, they do tend to move closely together even though the trends within the indices may not start and stop at the same time. And that leads us right into our big three for the week. Number one, let's dig up a little more market history on bear market trends. This current bear market is down 28% over the past nine months. The median losses during a bear market since 1929, down 29% over 12 months. We still have two and a half months to go in this trading year. And if we look back at the years that the S&P 500 was down more than 28%, 198 trading days into the year, it happened in 1931 during the Great Depression, 1937, the other depression of that ignoble decade, 1974 during a period of extremely high inflation, which led to a recession, and 2001 following the bursting of the dot-com bubble, then 2008 during the global financial crisis and recession. In three out of those five years, the market bounced back more than double digits the following year. The outliers, 1930 and 2001. We know there was a deep depression in 1931, but we also know that most CEOs and a lot of economists think that we have yet to enter a recession. So, which scenario is the current one most like in your opinion, 1930 or 2001? And that leads us to number two. 
And there's something very strange and potentially very dangerous happening inside the options market these days, especially in the zero DTE options market. That stands for zero days to even. It refers to single day options wherein traders open a position or trade at the beginning of the day or before that option expires at the end of the day, and they hold the trade until they collect the premium on that option, assuming it's within the profit zone of their strategy, then they exit the position or allow it to expire to collect the maximum amount of profit. It's complicated. Most options have only one opportunity per week, but options on S&P futures have five expirations every day of the week, Monday through Friday. In other words, options traders can make daily bets on the direction of the S&P 500, hoping it will rise or fall depending on whether they've purchased call or put options. It's a super risky strategy that could either earn you a tidy profit at the end of the trading day or blow up right in your face. Well, according to Goldman Sachs, the zero DTE options as a percent of daily volume has grown from around 10% in 2019 to 20% post-COVID to 30% in the second quarter of this year to around 40% in the past three months. Most of that activity, according to Goldman, is happening among retail traders, not institutions. Many retail day traders who chase meme stocks to the moon and back in 2021 have moved over to the options market, and a lot of them appear to be trying their hand at the zero days to even trading strategy. When we see these massive intraday swings in the S&P 500, retail traders playing in the options market, especially with these zero DTE options, may have a lot to do with it, which could be very scary if they're betting the market will rise and it continues to fall. And number three, how about some potentially good news or at least some signs of hope? Corporate insiders have begun buying their own company shares in bigger and bigger chunks over the past several weeks. Sectors like information technology, industrials, financials, real estate, communication services, and discretionaries are seeing heavy duty insider buying activity, according to Nejat Sehun, a finance professor at the University of Michigan who studies insider activity by analyzing the S-4 filings of various large cap companies. You could do it too. You see, corporate executives must disclose whether they're buying or selling large chunks of shares of their own company by filing an S-4 form with the SEC. You can look at those yourself on sec.gov if you like. Corporate insiders sell for all kinds of reasons. They need the money, they have a regular selling schedule to diversify their holdings, or they're bearish on their company's prospects. But they usually only buy for one reason. They think their stock is undervalued and they have a reason to believe it's going up. Given the historical accuracy of their timing, it's a glass half full sign. And you know what? We'll take it. Let's get set up for the week ahead, and it'll be popping with quarterly earnings reports from some widely held companies. The big banks kick things off after getting the ball rolling last week. Bank of America, Charles Schwab, and the Bank of New York will lead things off on Monday, followed by Goldman Sachs on Tuesday. We learned last week that the big commercial consumer-facing banks have fared a little bit better given rising net interest margins and classic banking activity like taking deposits and making loans. Higher interest rates are generally good for banks, which get to charge more on their loans. The big investment banks like Morgan Stanley and Goldman Sachs that depend on mergers and acquisitions, IPOs and trading, they've been under pressure as all of those activities have been asleep all year long. We'll also be keeping our eyes on the loan loss reserve these banks are taking as the drumbeat around a global recession gets louder. We'll hear results from United Airlines, J&J, and Netflix, among others, on Tuesday. Netflix just rolled out its new ad-supported model, and that'll be $6.99 a month for those willing to tolerate commercials amid their binge-watching. Consumer churn is becoming a problem for Netflix, so keep an eye on global subscriber numbers. Tesla will report results on Wednesday, along with IBM and Procter & Gamble, among others. As for Tesla, shares of the OG EV maker are down 41% this year, according to Ycharts. It announced 343830 
130 electric vehicle deliveries in the third quarter, a record for the world's most valuable automaker, but that was less than expectations of a little over 359,000. Philip Morris, AT&T, and Union Pacific, the Great American Railroad, headline Thursday's earnings reports, and Verizon and American Express will lead the way on Friday. Look for gas prices to be in focus this week, as the Biden administration plans to take new steps to lower prices, and it's reportedly considering releasing more oil from the Strategic Petroleum Reserves, as well as imposing limits on exports of energy products. The initiative comes a week after OPEC and its allies agreed to cut oil production by up to 2 million barrels per day. Midterm elections are coming up in early November, and inflation is the number one concern on Americans' minds according to just about every poll out there. The latest updates on the U.S. housing market, including September housing starts, building permits, and existing home sales, will be released this week, and we already know what to expect. Another slowdown across the boards last month as mortgage rates streaked past 6.5% on the 30-year. Professional sports has its sideline reporters. Broadcast news has its field correspondents. And financial news has its markets reporters. These are the people who bring us the action from the trading floors and commodity pits around the world where money is moving faster than the speed of light. Billions of dollars are trading hands, including our money. In the pantheon of legendary markets reporters sits CNBC's Bob Pisani. For 25 years, he's roamed the floors of the New York Stock Exchange, bringing us the trading action, the sentiment, and the real feel of the movement of money across capital markets. He doesn't just tell us what's happening, he tells us why, and he helps us as individual investors understand why it may be important to our investments. No one does it better than Bob Pisani, and he is our very special guest this week on the Investopedia Express, live from the New York Stock Exchange. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, Caleb. Great to be with you and great to have you down on the floor with me. So good to be here. You're out with a new book, Shut Up and Keep Talking, and I want to talk about that in a minute. But you've been working down here for a quarter of a century, Bob. How did you get here in the first place? How did you wind up as a markets reporter on the floor of the stock exchange? Well, I started at CNBC in 1990, a year after it first came into existence, and I was the real estate correspondent for the first six or seven years. My father was a very successful developer in Philadelphia. He had taught real estate at the Wharton School, and we wrote a book on real estate development. CNBC hired me as the real estate correspondent in 1990. But by 1996, we had started getting real ratings around this new hot thing called the internet, particularly the Netscape IPO in August of uh, 1995 really ignited interest in the internet, ignited interest in tech stocks, and CNBC was hot and new. And uh, we, our ratings started going up in direct correspondence to the volume at the NASDAQ. So I saw that and said, gee, I want to make the change and become a stocks reporter. And I became the uh, on-air stocks editor in September of 1997, came down on the floor. And at that time, there were 4,000 people down here on the floor. They did 80% of the volume right here on this trading floor. It's hard to believe. And if you want a sense of what technological disruption is like, Caleb, today there's 225 people on the floor doing 15 to 20% of the volume. That That's technological disruption right there. That's electronic trading, the effects of it. Right. And about 50 broadcasters and people working for different financial news networks. And I'm down here quite a bit. And you and I started roughly around the same time. It was the internet boom that brought me into business news as well. You've seen a lot of changes here. You alluded to some of them, a lot of historic events, Bob. But for the folks who have never visited the exchange, what actually happens here today? And and in these trading booths, there's booths all around here. There's obviously TV studios. Let's talk about how that has changed, because I know you covered a lot in your book, but this is something you've had a front row seat to. Yeah, again, it's technological disruption. So in 1996, when I was down here temporarily, uh, they were trading in eighths. Spreads was an eighth. In 1997, they went to 16ths. 
six and a quarter cent spread. And then in 2000, they went to penny spreads. That very much disrupted the overall model. It was an extremely profitable model. You can imagine trading stocks with increments of an eighth. That disrupted things. And then electronic trading disrupted things when all of a sudden you could successfully execute orders by electronic means. And there were also alternative trading venues that were established at that time outside of not just the NYSE, but even NASDAQ, which had very serious competition. There were various rules that prevented people from trading off of the floor up until 1999. But when the trading rules were changed, uh, the dam burst, and there were many alternative trading venues that were created. This was later codified in 2002 of 2006 with Reg NMS. But the bottom line now is instead of a couple of exchanges in 1997 that I had and a few off-exchange venues like Instanet, now there's 40 dark pools, 15 different exchanges. So very, very wide variety of places you can trade these days. So take us through your day. A lot of the traders, the market makers, the specialists that are working here, they get in well before the stock market opens at 9.30 a.m. Eastern time. When are you getting in? What are you checking? What are you reading throughout the day? And who are you checking in with? There are many different ways you can do this. I used to, I found my 1999 trading list and there were 500 people there that I was talking to in 1999. It's hard to believe. Today, I probably talked to a fifth that. First off, I looked at that list, 80% of them are gone. You want to know what Wall Street's done in the last 30 years. A lot of people have left the business, particularly the sell side. But I concentrate on small groups of people. I look at a few analysts and strategists, and I, I'm rather harsh on analysts and strategists in the book, a lot of them I feel don't add much value anymore because of the nature of the way the analyst business has changed. I'll call a few of them. I'll call a few sell side people. The most important thing to do is to find people who, in your opinion, will know what they're talking about and can give you an honest opinion. They're not necessarily the same thing. Wall Street talks its book all the time. But one of the things you get with seasoning, you've been around a long time, is Ernest Hemingway once said a good reporter has a built-in foolproof crap detector, and you get good at that. You get seasoned at that. I've been doing this 32 years, longer than most of the people I talk to, and you get to know how to build a narrative. And journalism is very simple. You come in in the morning and look at the wall and think of it as like 50 yellow stick'em pads on the, on the wall, stick'em notes, and there's an individual fact on each note. That's what you come in with. There's whole piles of facts, and your job as a journalist is to connect those pieces of information, to create a narrative, to tell people a story, essentially, that makes some kind of sense. And you just get better at it if you've been around long enough. So it's a combination of analyst, strategists, buy side, sell side people, reading a lot of notes, and just being able to understand what kind of narrative the public wants to hear. Yeah. That leads to my next question, which is, how do you decide what to say every day? You're obviously watching market movements. You're following some of the biggest companies. You're hearing from folks within your source group here, but you're also talking to both individual investors like me and like our listeners and to institutional investors who are watching CNBC. So how do you thread that line? Right. So the, the important thing when you start in the morning, like I'm on usually right after the market opens, and usually I'll have three, four, five minutes to talk about what the trends are. The most important thing that people want to know is momentum. Who's winning and losing? We used to call this the horse race. But by and large, I tend to watch broad sector movements. So Stocks in sectors tend to move together. Semiconductor stocks tend to be up, not all the same, but if there is an up day, they tend to mostly be up. Down day, they tend to be mostly down. Watch the trends, and that's what people want to know who are watching. Even people who are not professional traders, and most people who watch CNBC aren't trading all the time. They're just watching their money. That's what they're doing. They're not trading. And they want to know, all right, what's the direction? What's the trend? What's, is the market trend up, down, or sectors winners 
or losers? And overall, what is the feel of, of the street right now? And most of the time, people are interested in short to intermediate term. Short to intermediate term is a week to the next month or so. I call that the intermediate term trend. You can talk about long-term trends if you want, what it's going to look like three to six months from now. And I will do this at least once a quarter for a couple of weeks where I'll talk about the earnings trend. What's the earnings for the quarter? What's the earnings for the next quarter looking like? Because remember, Wall Street looks ahead three, six months down the road. So it's not so much For example, right now, we're done the third quarter. The earnings are coming out, but market's really trying to figure out the fourth quarter and the first quarter of next year. So the trends for me are to talk about what's happening in the fourth quarter and the first quarter of next year, and where do I think the CEOs are going to comment, where their commentary is going. It's not XYZ company reporting third quarter earnings that's going to move the stock. It's the company body language on the fourth and first quarters that's going to move the stock. That's what you want to talk about. It's that guidance. And the words that they're using, which are so important, I know we pay a lot of attention to how many times did they say inflation? How many times did they talk about the Fed? How many times did they mention recession? These are all real feels you get when you read those reports or listen to those executives. So we're in a rough bear market right now. You and I have seen a few of these in our careers, but what makes this one feel different to you than 1999 or 2008? The big difference is just the the fact that the Federal Reserve has spent a lot of time effort pumping money into the economy. After the great financial crisis in 2008 and 2009, the Fed under Ben Bernanke made a decision to really pump a lot of money. And the reason they did is Bernanke was a student of the Great Depression. He just won the Nobel Prize for this and came to the conclusion that the Great Depression of the 30s was not caused by the stock market crash of 29. It was caused partly by adherence to the gold standard, but largely because the Federal Reserve of 1930 did not act under the powers it had to help prop up the banking system. And when Bernanke had the opportunity, he moved very aggressively to help the banking system by providing money, liquidity, and support. They had the TARP program as well, of the Troubled Asset Relief Program that Congress passed. So they pumped a lot of money into the system. And between 2010 and 2021, the S&P went up 15% a year on average. That is rather extraordinary. The long-term average for the S&P 500 since 1926 is about a 10% gain, including the dividend. And 15 is a lot. And it's not unreasonable when you ask, well, why did it outperform by five percentage points over 12 years? It's not unreasonable to say that the Federal Reserve pumping liquidity into the system was a part of that outperformance. Just think about it. Liquidity on that level is just more money. When there's more money around, some of it will find its way into risk assets. And and the Federal Reserve said they wanted that. And that's reasonable to assume that that helped prop up asset prices. If you believe that, and I believe it, I think that's reasonable, then the Fed withdrawing liquidity would reasonably be expected to lead to a period of subpar returns, which is exactly what we're seeing this year with the S&P down about 22%. I have no idea if it's going to be down again next year. I know what the long-term trends are. If you want, we can talk about that. But it's certainly not unreasonable to expect some kind of subpar return this year and maybe even the next year too. By subpar, I don't mean necessarily negative. I mean, the average is 10% below 10%. By the way, it doesn't happen very often. The the S&P 500 typically goes up. Since 1926, it's up three out of four years. Think about that odds. This is why long-term, it's good to stay with the market. And it's up a lot. The S&P will move 10% or more in a year, 56% of the time since 1926. 56% of the time, the S&P is up 10% year over year. Only 12% of the time is it down 10% or more. This is why people ask me about playing the odds. 
the odds long term are very good that the stock market is going to go up over time and outperform most other assets. Back in the day, the NYSE, the New York Stock Exchange, used to be a place where news started or at least caught fire. You put a little kindling out here, you put a little news out there, and it would spread very quickly. There's less observable activity down here because of the reasons you mentioned, but the financial shows are still here. They're right in front of us. But what do you learn by talking, listening to what's going on in these booths, talking to the specialists, talking to the market makers? What are they talking about now? What's sort of that drumbeat that's going on? Again, these are sell-side people here. So what they're interested in is also the options traders in the other room. And it's all about volume and volatility. And that's how they make their living. They watch trading activity. So it's the sell side that you're dealing with here, not the buy side. And even though the floor activity is greatly diminished, the DMMs still, many of these uh, designated market makers are still the largest traders in their stock. And so they have significant positions. They're sitting here watching. Now, a lot of these trades, they're done on the floor, they're done with algorithms, but people are watching. And I always tell people outside, believe me, there are people sitting in here watching the stock market every day. And that fact alone, this idea that there's just computers running the stock market is not true. There's no computer that owns an algorithm. Nobody. The algorithm is owned by somebody who owns the stocks. And there's always somebody there who's writing the algorithm and probably writing it as it's being executed. So artificial intelligences do not exist and do not own stock. People exist who own stock, who write programs. And believe me, if it didn't work, they change it and uh, artificial intelligence do not lose or make money in the stock market. People do. So there are still people down here and you still talk to them. With that said, as I, as I said before, technological progress is what you want to invest in long run. And we have seen better efficiencies, higher levels of efficiencies, better bids and asks. It's markets a good deal for the average retail investor right now still. Yeah. For those trading it on the daily or on the minute, it's a little bit more challenging. They need that volatility. They need that action. So you've been down here for a lot of historical events, 9-11, sadly, a tr huge tragedy down here. But also, this was sort of the, the place where New York was reborn from, the New York Stock Exchange. I was down here the day it opened, too. That was a very big deal. But how did it change you personally and professionally? You know, after 1999, which was probably the greatest year of my life, we had more fun down here ever. I wish, I tell people, I wish there's a year in everyone's life in their career, like 1999, when the wind is at your back, everything seems like it's going right. And you know, it's a little bit of luck. You know, you just stand, largely you're standing in the right place at the right time. And you're smart enough to know that. That was a year when Dick Grasso and Bob Zito, uh, head of marketing here, had enormous success with the opening and closing bell. The most famous people in the world came in December 1999. I met Muhammad Ali that year, standing right here. And uh, let me tell you, that was an imposing man to meet. Even greatly diminished in 1999, he was, I'm six feet, he was 6'3", but it wasn't the three inches that was the difference. His shoulders were wide. And when he shook my hand, his hand went around my hand. I mean, you, I felt it. And it was st staying right at eyeball to eyeball with him. He was very imposing, impressive figure. And Walter Cronkite was here, my hero, the great broadcaster. And I met all the great baseball stars. And Jack Welch, the head of General Electric, my boss at the time, he owned NBC. And it was a wonderful moment. But then dot-com hit, and then the, the year after... 9-11. And downtown was transformed into a smoking ruin. It's very hard to describe what it was like here. All of us lost friends and family down here. And it smelled bad for a year and a half. It was hard to describe how difficult and 
anxious and depressing it was. There was concerns about additional terrorist attacks, which didn't happen, but that was a worry. Many people considered leaving the business. Some did. Everyone, though, in those first six months came to work, anxious and depressed, though, and it changed me. I considered leaving. A lot of my colleagues did. And what I ended up doing was I learned to meditate. I joined a Buddhist meditation society in Midtown. And what it taught me was calm the hell down, that what had happened was not my fault. It was an external event. And meditation teaches you that you may not be able to change something that happened to you. If you stub your toe on a chair, you can't change that fact, but you can change the way you relate to it. So you can pick up the chair and throw it through the window if you want, or you can find some way to stop worrying about stubbing your toe. And that's what I did. I learned to not worry about blaming me or you know being anxious. The world had changed. And the Buddhists say you can't step in the same river twice because it's not the same river anymore. So you sort of accept change in a way. That's basically what happened to me. And I decided that I still loved the job. I still loved the bell ring. I still love going out, having drinks with the traders. And I decided to stay. So that was my own. And I describe how difficult that was, that horrible year, 2001 and 2002, when everyone just felt awful and I almost left. Yeah, it, it changed all of us. And I remember that the smell you're talking about. I remember the feel down here. But thankfully, you stayed with it because you've really done so much good work for all of us as individual investors. And as just a fellow member of the media, I'm just uh, honored to have sort of worked alongside and watched you along the way. So you mentioned Cronkite. Who are your other greatest influences, whether it's broadcasting, business news, or in life? Well, when I wrote this book, one of the things you have to do is when I met with the publisher, they said, we don't want you to write a memoir, but we understand we want you to explain your intersection with the NYSE and and why you stayed all these years. It's very unusual for a journalist to say 25 years in one spot. So you have a what we call inch wide, mile deep. I'm very well known for a little area called the stock market. Uh, and when you think about it, you have to sit back and figure out what... I want to tell people, what do I think I know? But what do I know? So you make a list of the things. These are the things I really believe in strongly. And then you think, well, when did I come to believe these things? And it turns out there's a small group of people that greatly influenced me. Jack Bogle, the founder of Vanguard, I met in the mid-1990s, changed my life, influenced me on indexing and the value of keeping costs low. Jeremy Siegel, a Wharton professor, wrote Stocks for the Long Run, looking at the history of the stock market and why it was a good investment. Other people, uh, Charlie Ellis wrote Winning the Losers Game, which is about why professional stock pickers do not outperform the market. Burton Malkiel wrote a random walk down Wall Street about why the, the stock market tends to do what it does in efficient markets. Robert Schiller wrote Irrational Exuberance in 2000 um, and was one of the founders of behavioral economics. Last question, Bob. You know Investopedia is a site built on our financial terms, our dictionary. That's how we started. You've been around all of them. Do you have a favorite financial term or definition that just speaks to your heart? No, but I have to say Investopedia is a go-to source when I need a better clarification on a definition. I talk about some of my sources. Morningstar, I think, is a great source of information. There are certain blog posts that I will go to, ETFs.com, when I'm doing basic, simple, fast research on ETFs. And I think you've built a wonderful site at Investopedia. Uh, One of the things you know how successful you are is type in a definition. Type in efficient market hypothesis on Google. Go ahead and do it. You're going to be the first hit on the top. That's telling you something right there. That's success right there. When you And you can do this on DuckDuckGo too, which is another site I think very highly of. Uh, they're a competitor to Google, but you'll appear on the top. Type in efficient market hypothesis. Type on modern portfolio theory. You know, Type in Laffer curve. Investopedia will show up at the top. 
That's because that's we've been around since 1999, and we have editors that put a lot of work into that. We will take the compliment. If you don't want to give us the term, we'll take that and run legendary financial journalist, broadcaster, Bob Pisani, and author of the book, Shut Up and Keep Talking. I can't wait to point people out to where they can find it. And I have people ask me what it's like to work down here, Caleb, and we're standing right under the podium here where they ring the opening and closing bell, and I tell everyone, what would you give to meet all your heroes? Every rock star, every politician, king or queen, there's been 10,000 bell ringings in the 25 years I've been here, and I've met most of my heroes. It's been a great privilege uh, to work down here and to work for CNBC as well. Thanks so much for joining The Express. So good to talk to you, my Thank friend. Thank you, Caleb. Always a pleasure. It's terminology time, time for us to get smart with the investing term we need to know this week. And this week's term comes to us from Caleb Gervais, who hit us up on Instagram. I didn't just pick him because he has a cool name. He's got a good idea for a term, and that is a CDO or collateralized debt obligation. And according to my favorite website, a CDO is a complex structured finance product that is backed by a pool of loans and other assets and sold to institutional investors. A collateralized debt obligation is a particular type of derivative because, as its name implies, its value is derived from another underlying asset. These assets become the collateral if the loan defaults. Though risky and not for all investors, CDOs are a pretty viable tool for shifting risk and freeing up capital in more boring markets than the one we're currently sailing in. Michael Milken helped make those famous back in 1987, a very ignoble year as we'll learn about in a couple of minutes. Milken, the so-called junk bond king and the bankers at Drexel Burnham Lampert, created these early CDOs by assembling portfolios of junk bonds issued by different companies and selling them for tidy profits. Cut to today, an activity inside CDOs, particularly collateralized loan obligations, which are a version of CDOs, has been pretty intense. Collateralized loan obligations, or CLOs, are single securities that are backed by a pool of debt and often contain corporate loans with very low credit ratings. Well, according to the Wall Street Journal, in recent weeks, trading of CLO bonds, most commonly held by pensions and insurers, hit its highest level since March and April of 2020. Average daily trading in the first week of October was around a billion dollars, twice the daily average over the past 12 months, and a lot of that activity was happening in London as its bond market came unwound following Prime Minister Liz Truss's plan to cut taxes. She reversed course on that on Friday and fired her finance minister at the same time. Good suggestion, Caleb. We got a twofer out of that, and you will be getting a pair of handsome and stylish Investopedia socks for your smart suggestion. We're going to let the late, great Louis Ruckheiser take us out this week. Ruckheiser was a legendary business news broadcaster who hosted the show Wall Street Week with Louis Ruckheiser on PBS for 32 years. We're going to go all the way back to October 19th, 1987. We're coming up on that anniversary, a day known on Wall Street as Black Monday. The Dow fell 22.6% that day, the largest one-day drop in the more than 126-year history of the index. To this day, it's still the largest percentage drop ever, but it now ranks as the 97th largest point decline. That's the law of large numbers, don't you know? There is no one reason for the market crash of 1987. Stocks were selling off days in advance. Some people, including Ruckheiser, blamed program trading, the advent of electronic trading, which was in its early days, as we discussed earlier with Bob Pisani. Currency markets were on edge, and there were rumblings in the bond market that spilled over into stocks, as they often do. Well, back to Ruckheiser, who broadcast his show on that following Friday, and this is how he opened it. Okay, let's start with what's really important tonight. It's just your money, not your life. Everybody who really loved you a week ago still loves you tonight. And that's a heck of a lot more important than the numbers on a brokerage statement. The robins will sing, the crocuses will bloom, 
Babies will gurgle and puppies will curl up in your lap and drift happily to sleep, even when the stock market goes temporarily insane. And now that that's all fully in perspective, let me say, ouch. The great Louis Ruckheiser, ladies and gentlemen. Two years after Black Monday, 1987, the Dow hit all-time highs, and so it goes. Special thanks to Bob Pisani for joining us this week. He's another one of those legendary business news broadcasters I've admired my whole career. We're going to link to his new book in the show notes if you're looking for a good read or a good stocking stuffer. We'll also link to the transcript of our conversation and all the reports we cited in the show notes. Find those wherever you are listening and on investopedia.com slash the express podcast. And don't forget to sign up for Your Money, Your Health our free virtual summit on October 20th at 2 p.m. Eastern time, where we'll explore the intersections between our financial lives and our healthcare. Believe me, they are very connected. We'll be talking about how to pay for it, how to plan for it, how to invest today with your health in mind and the future of health technology, all with some of the smartest people we know across both industries. We're teaming up with our partners at Very Well and Parents Magazine for that. We're gonna put a link to the sign up in the show notes and we hope to see you there. Did I mention that it's free? It is, so come check it out. Buckle up for a busy one this week and we'll talk again a little further on down the line. 